Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome to the Sugar Club. Please welcome to the stage the future host of the Blue Jean Country Queen Festival in that boy, Kenny Mead. It's Kieran Murph Murphy! It's the reverend of reverence, the flame-haired, flame-thrower truth, Mr. Ken Early. And finally, please welcome to the stage the Golden Goose, broadcasting's hairiest man, it's Owen McDevitt! Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Sports Night with Rabo Direct, a snappy title, I'm sure you'll agree. This is the first time we've taken the podcast out in the road and into the real world, and what a scene we have in front of us here. Ken, for the benefit of our listeners, can you, I don't know if you can see too well here, but can you talk us through what you see at the moment? I can see, yeah, uh, just a limitless sort of amphitheater, everybody, the amphitheater's full, the audience looks kind of full. Have you been eating pizza in here? <laughs> Uh, so there's a guy vaping there in the <laughs> front row. You're not allowed to vape, are you? Indoors? That's, that's, I mean, that's the idea of vaping. I should point out, by the way, this audience isn't simply here by chance. Each and every one of you is here on merit because you guys are the cream that's risen to the top of the ticket application process. We asked everyone here who applied for tickets to tell us the highlight of their own sporting careers. We may have also dropped a hint or two that uh, stories illustrating an extreme lack of sporting prowess will be looked upon somewhat favourably, and there are plenty of those, I should say. Uh, we thought this feature might provide Real us... pack of losers we got in here tonight. With a little that. bit of... We thought we might have a little bit of light entertainment around the office, maybe a few giggles, you know, that kind of thing, but uh, it's taken a dark turn, because pretty much all of your answers pointed to some sort of inner anguish yeah. uh, related, born out of a, a harrowing sporting experience in your youth. Well, tonight, folks, is going to be a night of healing for you poor, pitiful, failed sports people. There are no harsh school teachers here this evening, no judgmental parents to ruin your spirit, just your loving second captains. Let's begin the healing, Murph and Ken. So our, our first message is from uh, Cormac Golden. Cormac, are you in the house? Put your hand up. Where are you, Cormac? I don't see. He's at the bar, probably. Uh, talks of uh, being in the community games final, we lost on a panel of 32 players. There were only 30 medals, so 30 lads went up to collect them. I was dropped from the medal ceremony. <laughs> Porrick Duffy. Uh, Porrick, are you here? No? No, I don't see him. Uh, Leach Under 12, County Champions 1998 for Borna a rural parish, beating Mohol, a town club with vastly superior resources in the final. The only time my father described my performance as above average. That's uh, tough love. Uh, Jennifer O'Toole, also first year secondary school basketball B team, scored one basket ever and was subbed and eventually dropped. The coach told my parents I was the worst player he had ever seen. At uh, Lorcan McGrath, Underrates North Dublin Schoolboy League final brought on with two minutes to go with the team winning 4 0. Non coincidentally, my father was the manager. Thanks uh, for is sharing. Alan O'Connor here? Alan O'Connor, if you're here or not. He's the man who had to come off in a rugby match with a bloody nose for kicking a tap penalty into his own face. <laughs> um, Jason Reed, 
actually has this triumphant story of hitting a double two to clinch the North City Darts League 2013. The 20 or so in attendance went crazy. Dave Gibson says he briefly had the upper hand in his under 12 chess match for the 1990 Community Games qualifier in Athlone, captured the Queen, and eventually settled for a pathetic draw. Uh, Simon Fennell lastly says he saw Neil back climbing some stairs one time. Overtook him on principle, the prick. <laughs> We've David Sweeney in senior infants. I came third in a sports painting competition where I drew a picture of me and my friends playing basketball in school. I progressed to the Dublin finals, but that was where my journey ended. Oh, not much there. Uh, Martin Lee, once got a lift to a match in Damien Duff's dad's car. Does that count? Henry Mix, I was the third person in my class to finish the Premiership sticker book for the 1995-96 season. It's not bad, always tricky. And Declan O'Leary, if you're here, Declan, this is, a, this is not a good claim to fame. I met Ken early in the gym once, he says must, Declan. Ken must have walk, walked in there by accident. I hope that has helped to ease the pain the a little bit. But let's be honest here. What you really need is some cold, hard cash to make it all go away. So let's, uh, let's extend the love by offering two members of the audience tonight the chance to win some big money at the end of the show in our Rabo Direct 1,000 euro challenge. And what an amazing bank Rabo Direct are, by the way. We need these two people to identify themselves here. Murph will get around to you to hear your, stor your story. Our first finalist is... Drum roll, please. Kieran Doyle. Kieran's story again. Kieran, where are you? You're over here. Kieran, your story uh, is my rugby career ground to a halt in an under-15s game between Belvedere and St. Mary's. That January morning haunts me to this day. I'd style myself in the mold of a French playmaking nine. However, our coach that morning thought I would better serve the team on the wing. Having been caught out of position for one or two tries, the coach's dressing room analysis consisted of placing the blame entirely on me. To make matters worse, he called to my house later that week to explain to my parents how this defeat was my fault and how I had to show real character now. Who said elderly priests don't make excellent rugby and life coaches that was the last game of rugby i ever played oh my god kieran give that man a hug you're part of our team now kieran well competing against kieran later on this evening our second finest drum roll Aoife hamill where are you Aoife? Well, Aoife's, right Aoife's quite nearby there do you know each other that's all right then ken Aoife is the under 10 loud community games champion in art i know it's not even a sport but I got to go to Mosny. No track seats for the art kids, though. Devastating. We'll say goodbye to those dark times, Aoife. A round of applause, please, for Aoife Hamill and Kieran Doyle. They'll be up later on. Competing for 1,000 euro, courtesy of our kind sponsors, Rabboy Direct, a little bit later in the show. Uh, right now, we're going to be well, actually, later again, we'll be talking Man City Barcelona in the Champions League. But an Ireland-England game with the Grand Slam still on the line is something to look forward to. So let's look forward to it right now. Please welcome two of our podcast regulars. Uh, one of the greatest Irish rugby players of all time, Dennis Hickey, and a colossus of the Irish Times Sports Department, Jerry Thornley. There's a microphone there for you somewhere, Dennis. Yeah, uh, guys, great honour, as always, to have the boys with us, Jerry and uh, Dennis. Thanks for being here. And I have to say, I was struck by something last night, Dennis. Obviously, it was uh, Oscars night. And I spotted a certain superstar on my screen. And I thought, wait a second, isn't that a young Dennis Hickey I just saw? Check it out there. And if you fade the lights, I think it... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, are Michael Fassbender and a young Dennis Hickey not exactly the same people? I uh, will not be drawn on whether any other parts of the anatomy match up, folks. That's... Come on, that's just childish. But uh, that was, of course, quite a few years ago. But the one and only Irish Times rugby correspondent, Jerry Thornley, was, of course, still covering the beat. Although, Jerry, your luck was more Finbar Fury than uh, uh, Michael Fassbender. That, that is actually a great album, Jerry. I actually have that one in my house. They were, they were dark days. <laughs> <laughs> Lads, Ireland are closing in on statistically becoming the best Irish team ever. If they win this one, they're 10 in a row. And the best to ever run is 10, so they'll be, they'll be joined top of that list. But have they become a boring team to watch in the process? Um, no. <laughs> I think they're just playing what's in front of them. When a team like France turns up intent on having an arm wrestle and beating you into submission and running through you, you just have to match them physically. and You don't have much choice about it. I think they're also developing as a team still with Johnny Sexton's first game in three months, a brand-new midfield partnership. So I don't think... I think if you're in the stadium you get absor absorbed in the match and you get carried away with it and certainly nobody was leaving the French game early and every, I think it might be a different event if you're watching it on television, maybe not as excited as a spectacle, but I think if it's another arm wrestle and Ireland get home by a point on Sunday, 
there won't be too many people complaining. Is it not the opposite, though, of playing what's in front of them? And I know Joe Schmidt has said that he gives the players license to, to play heads-up rugby, but outside of Johnny Sexton, who probably does have that license, is it a bit of a stretch to say the rest of them are actually playing off their own bat? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think you'll see... You've got to make allowances for test rugby, and it's just so much harder to score tries. And it's not just Ireland who are finding this. I mean, Ireland has scored two tries, both against 14 men. France has scored one try in the tournament against 14 men. It's just harder to find space. You're coming up against the best players, the best defensive systems. Players are more alert, making less mistakes, and it's just harder to break them down. I do think you will see a more fluent and fluid Ireland before this season, this campaign is out. Um, for example, games with Wales are always free-scoring, highly entertaining affairs, because Wales try and play as well. Um, England make it more difficult for you to score points, so I wouldn't think that's necessarily going to happen this Sunday. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird, because you, you t- Joel Schmidt says the players you know, have that licence. Do, do players actually want that licence, or is there kind of a comfort in saying, right, well, we have a brilliant coach, let's just do exactly what he, does, what he tells us to do, and just subjugates the, to the will of the, the coach, effectively, Dennis? Um, well, I don't think it's as black and white. I don't think um, you know you're, you're you're talking about the players, very experienced players. They're not every time they approach a, a move or a set piece thinking, "Oh, what did Joe tell us to do here? What's our game plan here?" Like a game plan is just a framework which to play the game um, in various parts of the pitch, uh, and they'll think probably more of the outcome. So, what I mean by that is they'll think, "Okay, so when the ball is kicked off to us." The next time the whistle goes, we need to be in this part of the uh, field. How we get there is really up to us. We've got a few different uh, moves or a few different plays we can play to play it. So it's not really a... Um, I don't think it's a blow-by-blow blow account of, here's what we have to do here, and the next thing we do there, and if I, if I don't do that, I'm going to be in trouble. It's just a real... Uh, you know, I've, Game plans are, are, are always, no matter how rigid they may seem, they're just a framework with which players uh, can play. But w- within every situation, there's a, uh, there's, a, um, there's a few different ways to achieve the same thing. And I think that's probably more in line with the, uh, with this, the way this team is playing. But I don't think that's p- particularly different to, to any side. I think the more structured teams, the more organized teams are better teams. But they also have players that have um, the ability to... Uh, play more intuitively if they have to um, for various situations. You don't find it boring to watch the Irish approach? No, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think boring is um, the right word. I think I think Ireland are very pragmatic in how they play. Um, if you look, I think people are looking at the Six Nations saying, okay, we didn't score, messed up a try maybe against France, we didn't create a huge amount of chances, didn't create a huge amount of chances against Italy, so they're saying, okay, maybe we're not playing as exciting as we need to. But Ireland scored a lot of tries in November. Um, very good tries, uh, ones that were somewhere off the cuff and some were from set plays. So I think what Ireland have shown uh, so far this season and under Joe Schmidt in general, I think they're very, they're very pragmatic how they play. They decide what they need to do to break down a certain team um, and they probably develop that game depending who they're playing. So against Australia, they played quite different to how they played against South Africa. They played differently, I think, again, against Italy, um, because I think they knew what they needed to do and what they had to do to beat Italy and not necessarily do everything they would do against playing England. Um, so I, I expect them to play you know, in a different sort of way, uh, again, against England, but built on a very solid platform and a very solid approach of what they've done in the previous two games. Jerry, if you'd been, uh, say, about 18 months ago, around when Joe Schmidt took the job, if you were told that in this year's Six Nations, we'd have two wins from two and we'd have just played France... We'd have won nine in a row, but had made no line breaks against France and, and only offloaded the ball twice. Would you be surprised about that? Not, not necessarily about the success Joe Schmitz had, but about how pragmatic he seemed. Because when he was with Leinster, I don't know if we all thought maybe he was somewhat idealistic in how he approached the game, but certainly uh, it was a different type of rugby with, for, for various reasons. It was a different type of rugby, and you had, a, I guess, a more advanced, more proven side. He inherited a team that had won a European Cup. Um, there had a lot of game breakers in it. You're talking about Brian O'Driscoll, the most creative player that Irish rugby's had probably ever for the last 15 years, him being in the mix along with others. And um, yeah, they did, they did score. He, did, he came in vowing that he would improve the handling skills, the passing, the catching, and the finishing. And Leinster were true to his word. And not only were they the most successful side in Europe, but they were the best team to watch as well. Um, it, so in that sense, yes, maybe it's a little bit surprising. But I go back to my original point. It's just harder to break down international teams than it is club sides or provincial sides. I mean, 
I remember one quarter final when Lens were brilliant against Cardiff, but you know, a team like Cardiff doesn't turn up on the international stage too often. They were, they were hardly interested that day. Likewise, you just get more time and space in a way. Even, even a French team that might not be the most brilliantly organised team in the world, they can read moves that Ireland are trying to do a bit quicker. Like, for example, the line-out mall that then moved to Sexton the free play for the cross-kick. Teddy Thomas criticised for not being very experienced defensively, not reading, but he was still under that cross-kick because this is the best of the French team they're putting out on the pitch. So they're going to be stronger generally than any club side around, and it just is harder. Plus, it's a side, like I said, that's developing, particularly in the 10, 12, 13 axis. And they were the leading try scorers in last year's Six Nations. So I think we're probably rushing to judgment a little bit too much on just the base of two games. Not that I think this next one is going to be altogether a huge amount different. Yeah, and obviously we'll take it if Ireland go <laughs> win the next three games, playing whatever type of rugby is necessary. But does it actually say more about where the sport is at, certainly in the Six Nations at the moment, that this is the way Joe Schmidt, possibly the smartest coach in world rugby, has decided is the most effective way to play? Um, I, I'm not sure, really. I, I just think, there's, just on, on Jerry's point, and feeds into this, I just don't think there's any comparison between how Leinster can play or would have played under Joe Schmidt or any team under Joe Schmidt and, and the type of pressure that the Irish team is under at the moment and how difficult the games are. I think anyone who was at the game, and I don't, you know, I watched the first game I was on TV and I was at the, at the game um, last week, but the intensity of the game uh, is far in excess of what's in a club game. Um, okay, the occasional European game is close, but from minute one to minute 80, um, it was you know, an incredibly physical match. Now, you can say, well, the game is changing and maybe people aren't scoring as many tries. The best game of rugby I've seen probably in the last five years was New Zealand, South Africa last summer. Two huge sides, very physical. I don't know, scores 28, 36 or something like that. So there's plenty of ways to score tries for, for teams once that's, you know, if that's the way they're playing. So I expect Ireland to, to um, you know, I, I don't see this as, as a a problem all of a sudden for Ireland that they can't break teams down. Um, I just think that's the, 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 the way they're playing at the moment. I think as their game and their team evolves, and they do have a lot of new combinations as well, um, especially in the midfield. I think as that combination develops a little bit more, um, they will maybe break teams a little bit uh, easier or first phase. But Ireland tactically do play... They put a huge amount of um, emphasis on their kicking game, especially in the back three kicking game, and they kick to regain the ball as opposed to kick for position a lot. So they kick instead of, let's say, trying to break down a team by running a really hard line the way Wales do with Jamie Roberts, they might they kick the ball in the air and back their chasers to compete and win the ball back. That's, you know, that's a tactical way. It's, it's just another way of doing the same thing. It goes back to the outcome uh, of you know, the way they think after this scrum, it's, after this scrum, it's most important that we're in the other uh, team's 22 and we have the ball. Now, do we do that by trying to uh, uh, bust in the, in the uh, midfield through some sort of move, or are we doing a kick in the air and retrieve it that way? And they just have a, the skill set to be able to, to um, vary between both. Um, so the kicking game is a huge part of the way Joe Schmidt plays, uh, and that maybe lends people to think, okay, they're not as inventive as they were. But I think it's very effective, and as long as it's effective, I think they're going to keep doing it. England, meanwhile, have found ways to score tries this year, Jerry, eight of them so far in two games. How concerned are you about Sunday, about the challenge England posed? Well, they definitely played the best brand of rugby in the, over the two weekends to date, and a lot of things have changed to a degree, and Dennis has mentioned this before. They've almost stumbled upon a win, winning formula. I think they went to Cardiff with 16 injured players, uh, one of whom was Owen Farrell, so they've had to play George Ford at out half. They brought in Jonathan Joseph at outside centre, Anthony Watson on the wing, all Bath players so they have a good understanding. I mean, we shouldn't um, rubbish Owen Farrell entirely. I mean, Owen Farrell was the out-half behind the English team that won the last four fixtures with Ireland. I mean, his mental strength and his kicking four from four, whatever it was in Lansdowne in the Aviva a couple of years ago, I mean, he really showed what a, a competitive, uh, mentally strong player he is. But Ford is a more natural player, and he does take the ball to the game line, and he does delay his pass more, and he picks out teammates like Joseph and Watson and so forth. And that makes him more dangerous, and it's given another dimension to their game. And certainly their midfield, when um, Brad Barrett was there, was defensively very strong, but it didn't have much in the way of footwork. Joseph's come in and given them real footwork. I mean, the way he stood up Dan Bigger on the opening night at the Millennium Stadium and beat three players to score that try was... Um, something they didn't have in their locker in the last four times they played Ireland. So they've actually added to their attacking mix. They're conceding more tries, but they definitely undoubtedly added to what they have had before. Yeah, and Robbie Henshaw has been getting rave reviews for his performances so far. Is this the big test now against England, against this particular uh, back line? 
Um, I think so. I think if you look at the um, teams that aren't have played so far, obviously in Six Nations, I don't think they've they've particularly been tested uh, with any sort of subtlety. Sure, you know, obviously both sides have had uh, had uh, players with varying physical attributes. Obviously, you know, playing Matthew Bastereau. There's a, nothing too subtle know. about Matthew Bastereau. No, there's not, and there's no nothing subtle really about French back play. Really, certainly offset piece anymore. That's it's not in the game. Um, but I think so. You'll you'll you'll. Ireland will be playing a team that have shown their ability to, to be inventive. And I, I also think they've, they've got the, the form attacking backs probably in, in Europe at the moment, as, as Jerry said. You know, they went to, they went to Cardiff with uh, four out of six you know, outside backs to, who'd never played in, in Cardiff before. And they just played with great attacking verve. I suppose they played as, like a side without a lot of the baggage of... Like Wales had a lot of baggage. They had a lot of big reputations. But they, they, if you looked underneath it, they had very little form. Um, you know, obviously, Jamie Roberts had played well in the, in, the last Cup, uh, in the last European Cup game. But most of their players, like uh, Jonathan Davis, was in and out of the Claremont side. Cooper wasn't playing that well. Even North, while he was playing well for, for um, Northampton, was getting a bit of criticism. Whereas England had, had the core guys at Bath and a couple of other guys like... Um, um, the guy from Gloucester on the wing, whose name I can't now remember. Johnny of course, May. Sorry, Johnny May, yeah, who had played quite well um, coming into the tournament. And they just had, they carry that form into, into uh, their game. So I, I expect them to, to uh, attack again. And I think they will, they'll be saying to themselves, you know, I, I don't think this Irish side has been tested by anyone as good as us so far. So we're going to bring that to this game and see how they cope. So listen, stay on the couch there for the time being because we have got two more special guests to bring out for you now. They, uh, there were two big retirement announcements in Irish rugby in the last week or so and the men who made them are both with us tonight. I'm delighted to say, please welcome Munster's Damien Varley and Lancer's Shane Jennings. Guys, thanks very much for the two of you for coming along, first of all. Uh, big it's decisions. Good tight fit in the couch there. It really is a tight fit yeah. in the couch. <laughs> He's put on a bit of weight. Yeah. <laughs> Does no one flex too much and we should be fine? Damien, we'll start with your decision, uh, your retirement decision, which I guess wasn't yours, really. It was taken out of your hands, uh, made by a surgeon in London last week, which is the end that no sportsman wants. Um, it's happened to you, unfortunately. Can you take us back to the moment you were told it was over for you? Yeah, um, I suppose I've known for a while. It was uh, actually the day before we played Saracens uh, in the European Cup, and I was over for uh, uh, kind of a see how rehab was going. And I knew kind of going into it there was something uh, not right. I was still in a lot of pain, and it was just dragging on. So in one sense, sitting across a desk from a guy and he's telling you, you know, you can't play rugby anymore, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking in one sense. Um, and it's never something you want when that's, it's not your decision. So, on the other hand, trying to rehab it for months and uh, agonising with yourself as to whether to make the decision as to when to call it a day is equally as tough. So, Were you expecting it to be that definitive? It, it was a foot problem that you'd had all season. Were you half expecting him to tell you this, or was it a hammer blow? Uh, it's always a hammer blow. I mean, you, ha- you may have an inkling going in that you know, you're still in a bit of trouble, but when, the, when he's sitting across and saying, look, uh, we, st- we still have a bit of a problem, we may look at surgery, but ultimately uh, rugby should be no more for you and I advise you not to play anymore. It is a blow, um, and it probably goes over your head a little bit until you walk out of the surgery. And uh, I was going to hook up with the team that night, and, and I, I literally just kind of started crying in the taxi on the way over to meet them, and uh, it, it is that kind of blow... Uh, but, you know, I, I'm not the first to get it. Did you tell the lads that night, or did you, did you kind of leave them to prepare for the game? No, I didn't tell anyone for a while. I, I, I actually had to do a Q&A in a, in a pub that night. And, uh, you know, it's not something you can tell straight away. You kind of have to get your own head around it and, um, you know, come to terms with it before you uh, tell people. That sounds like a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> this sort of environment, kind of answering a few questions about your career while knowing in your own head that it was over? It is, it is, but I mean, it still has to happen. I mean, I, I, did, I couldn't let on. 
and you know I suppose I remember kind of trying to pull myself together to go into the hotel and ultimately hook up uh, it was Axel and uh, Connor that were doing it with me and you know the lads had a huge game the following day and you know it's uh, the game itself and the club is bigger than my decision to retire it, it all goes on and uh, you know I had to kind of rein it in and just get on with it Is there an element of relief now in that you've known about it for a few weeks since, since that day and now you've told everybody you, you can begin to shelve your rugby playing life and start thinking about the future yeah definitely I mean the support is, is amazing and for the last uh, couple of months people coming up to you saying when are you back and um, you know encouraging you on it's uh, but you're at the same time you're kind of going no well I'll be back in a few weeks and you're put you know put it on the long finger when, when you come out of it in the end then it is a bit of relief and I suppose you can uh, come to terms and move on to the next chapter Shane you um got to make the decision for yourself was there one specific standout reason why kind of now is the time you've decided to, to retire no there probably wasn't to be fair uh and i think over the course of time that was probably highlighted more than ever because uh i think coming into the negotiation process i was probably mad keen to play and then i was struggling with a hamstring injury and i was like well, i've never had a hamstring injury in my life i've never torn a muscle i've broken a few bones and things like that but i was like on is that age or is that just unlucky or and then, as Damien and the lads will know, it's a young man's game, and the, the next generation coming through are, are big physical men, and when you're a bit older, the hits hurt a bit more, and I don't know if I could face going through another preseason. and then I'd prepared myself. I always wanted to go out of rugby on my terms, but I knew I had to be prepared for that, so I was in Irupa a few years back, annoying them, trying to get my kind of a bit of a plan together, so I went studying, and uh, that's why I'm... I'm the complete opposite. I'm very fortunate where I was allowed and I was able to make that decision myself. And uh, that's another reason. I, I want to I want to be able to go for a run next year and I want to be able to play a bit of golf or whatever I do. And, you know, thankfully, hopefully, touch wood, I don't get an injury that allows me to. So you mentioned there the negotiations. You were talking about a new contract, which, which meant you mustn't have been certain that you were going to retire until relatively recently. Was there one particular moment where you decided, nah, forget about the contract, we're, we're just going to... No, thankfully there wasn't. Uh, like any negotiation process, especially when you're a 33 going on 34-year-old rugby player, you're nearly bent over a barrel, and if you haven't prepared, that's where they're going to get you, at their at their at what they consider their value for you. So, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I had an option to uh, to continue playing, but I think it's not just on one decision. You have to take in a lot of uh, a lot of variables, and, uh, you know, thankfully I was, I was very happy with one decision. I took long enough to think about it. And uh, I feel it's the right one for me. There's plenty being said at the moment about the, the physicality in the game, the size of players. You mentioned there that it's, it's a young man's game now. Have you noticed that even in the last year or two that the, the body is just maybe not finding it harder to absorb the hits against the likes of Bassero and these kind of players? Yeah, I think uh, from my point of view, I probably haven't been able to do weights in probably about three or four years on my upper body because I've had shoulder niggles or I've had neck niggles. And when you're in in the season and you're going through games the most important thing is that you have to play so uh that if you can't do weights and you can't build yourself up the other lads that are doing it are ready to kick lumps out of you and that's what happens you know and you get a bit cuter knowing where to hit guys and knowing where to tackle them but the odd occasion you get hit hard and uh, it hurts if you're not kind of if you're not prepared for it so uh yeah like th that was probably the main issue when the longer the, the negotiations went on, I kind of said, okay, hold on, let's think about this properly here. I'm fortunate where I'm, I've been offered, I've got that option, and I have hopefully a good career ahead of me in another industry or another business or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was quite easy come the end of it, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, not all bad news for the whole concussion debate going on at the moment. A lot of people saying you're better off out of the game. You know, you avoid all of these nasty head collisions and all that. But to be honest, you know, I, I think it's actually all greatly exaggerated. I actually don't remember you ever getting a bad knock. I mean, just, just a flesh wound. <laughs> you don't seem that bothered, absolutely fine. That was from Kevin McLaughlin, my own teammate. Yeah, so. You look so happy, though. There's it, blood yeah. streaming down Shen Jennings' face here. The my teeth look nice, here. don't they? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, as for your retirement, Damien, well, as a lot of uh, you all know, Damien is actually a brilliant musician, so hopefully you'll focus uh, a bit of time on that. Now, he's a keen classical violinist, which may not at first glance be an ideal mix with the front row image. I mean, how the hell are you going to look tough holding a violin? I, I just don't see it. Although, <laughs> although I, I do actually think you did manage it there all the same. Come, come on, have a go if you think you're hard enough. Other members of the string section is uh, what Damien appears to be saying there. Lads, I want to move it back to the Ireland-England game. And both of you have played club rugby in England for two of the biggest clubs over there. Damien, in your time at Wasps, James Haskell, Danny Cipriani, who are both 
returning heroes for the England team now were involved. Uh, fairly confident characters? Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. Um, I was obviously... Cox, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was new to the game. It was my first professional side, and uh, I think these were two of the biggest celebrities, or at least wanted to be celebrities, um, <laughs> when I went over. You know, um, you know, they were good players. They pro- they're, they're better players now than they were at the time. Um, they probably needed probably a readjustment of attitude and, and things like that. And I think leaving the club and, and, and moving on to different clubs gave them the little kick and being dropped from the English squad gave them a little kick that they probably needed. And uh, I think they've benefited from it. Yeah, this is maybe symptomatic of what's going on with Lancaster's England. Is it, Dennis, that guys are just refining their personalities and their mindsets to suit what he wants? Um, yeah, like I think Haskell's an, an interesting character, and he, you know he's had a very interesting career. He's played in France, he played in New Zealand, he played in Japan, uh, and now he's kind of come back to a resurgent wasp. Like he went took a contract from wasps when they were only kind of coming out of pretty bad patch, but he went back to his to his roots, so to speak. And uh, he's obviously mellowed out a little bit as a as a person, but he's you know as a player he's probably playing better than ever. Um, and I think you know I think he is a good example of how the kind of maturing player can uh, respond to the, the new culture that has been developed in England under, um, uh, under Lancaster. I think the culture in England is, is very strong and they, I think they were lacking that for a long time, that kind of um, rugby was getting very big and they had a lot of big characters and they had Johnson then coaching and you know, it was becoming verging on, on the tabloid for a little while and he just took everything back and I think it's just it's um it's a culture that really you know a lot of those players kind of need that sort of level-headedness and they refer to him a lot they refer to the coach and I, I, I'm not sure if this is peculiar to rugby but I think um sports players like having a coach that they can really like very much respect uh, and you'll always see a happy team is always referring to their coach um, I always thought it was interesting, for example, like a guy like Simon Mannix last year for when he was at Munster. I never ever heard a Munster player talk about Simon Mannix, um, and he didn't survive very long. Whereas I think, you know, a, 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 you know, coaches, the, 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 you know, you hear the players talk about Joe Schmidt, you hear the players talking about Ekin Kidney, increasingly more about Anthony Foley. They don't about, just have to say nice things, though. No, they don't. They don't have to say anything at all. Um, and you know the, the English players never spoke a huge amount positively about Martin Johnson when he was coach. They respected him hugely as a player, and that's all they ever said. You know he was a fantastic player, but they never said this guy's a fantastic tactical genius. He's a re- you know we really like what he's bringing to the sides. We're already responding to it. So he's, he came in and really leveled the ship, and he's brought guys like um, Haskell and guys like Cipriani brought it back in. But the culture of the team is very different. And they realise very quickly they have to buy into the culture. They're not going to come in and be bigger personalities than there. And, and that's why England have the incredible strength and depth they do with them at the moment. Shane, you told us uh, before on a previous show that the, uh, you played in 2010 against England and that Paul O'Connell was particularly good in that week, that he's always very good in big match weeks. And you'd be familiar with this, day, uh, uh, just in, in the sense of, uh, of kind of getting the, the, the tone right. Paul Ackford was writing in the Times in the UK... There have been times in changing rooms before games when players have wept openly when O'Connell has spoken. Either of you two boys wept openly? Has it gone that far? Could be a Munster thing, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Leinster players don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just remember Andrew Trimble saying that uh, one time. And uh, I think Ireland are lucky. We've got a few guys that are, that are real leaders amongst the team, but I think Damien knows more than anybody. But from my time around Paul, like he's an exceptional leader and he's just... He's a quality bloke. He's a smart guy. He speaks well, and you know anything that he says, he always backs it up. And like he's just an incredible player, and people really listen to him. And he, when he talks, he holds the attention. And when someone backs that up, you know that he gets the respect he deserves. And like I'm sure he was big in the France week. He'll be even bigger this week, and uh, he'll take a lot of responsibility and protect the younger guys and stuff like that. I guess, Amy, you probably don't want to be that, quite that wound up before a game. The, the emotions need to be kept somewhat in check. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the thing about someone like Paul, and I, I actually read that article, um, it's, it, it's, it's probably his presence. You know, you, you see a guy like that who has worked so hard um, 
and it's probably his own emotion. It's probably sometimes it's what he says, sometimes it's how he says it. But uh, there's definitely he, he can he can definitely stir emotion, and I think that's what makes him unbelievable as a, as a captain. Uh, you know, he works extremely hard and he backs everything he says up, and I think that's what he uh, how he emotionally charges people. Jerry, we've been talking about the Irish uh, tactical approach up until now. Are you expecting anything vastly different? against England, it's a very different, it's a much more organised team they're playing against and they have played certainly in, in, the, in the last game. Does it's that all, mean Ireland's approach is going to change drastically? It, it could do and there's always a Joe Schmidt factor with every match that he comes up with some aspect, some tweak to the game plan that works specifically for a given opponent. For example, the last time out against France, the reverse restarts to the right to Tommy Bow yielded two winning returns off restarts which led to, to the position from which they kicked six points in a very tight, low-scoring game. It's those little details that Joe Schmidt's teams invariably bring to games that the players act out. That can be the difference in the end. And he will come up with something, you can be sure, although it might be more difficult to come up with something against this English team than it was against the French team because they're just better organised. Yeah, and Shane Horgan actually made a very interesting point about this, saying that it might be easier for Schmidt to read England because they're so well-organised. There was such a... France seemed so disorganised that Shane was actually saying it's... It was impossible. They didn't know what they were doing, so we had no chance of knowing what they yeah, were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is a pretty interesting idea. You know, yeah. Schmidt has two weeks at least to plan. He knows what England are going to bring. Yeah, I was talking to Les Kiss before the French game, and he always says he spends more time picking stuff out of the video to show to the players when he's studying France than anybody else. But he does reckon that the English, this English team will be more dangerous because they will be more sure of what they're doing, that we'll be better prepared on the training ground than what France are doing. So it might be hard to read, but also England will be more effective at it. I don't think France surprised Ireland that much in the end. There was one time when they went from deep. Remember when Mike Ross made that stunning tackle on Teddy Thomas? But like that was almost out of character with the rest of their performance. I think that would apply more to a Clermont team now than it would to a French team, to be honest. Dennis, the team selection will be interesting and that Keane Healy's going to be pushing for a place. Ian Henderson might be pushing for a place. They have to get somebody in there in the back row instead of Jamie Heaslip. How do you see it panning out or who would you like to see in there? Um, I think in the front row, I think you might stick with Jack McGrath. I think Keane Healy played a bit uh, against Ebre at the weekend, maybe 20 minutes. Um, but I've got a feeling he might see more of a value for him coming on. Uh, off the bench maybe than starting just, that's just a, a hunch really more than based on any sort of scientific analysis uh, I don't know I'm not really sure maybe Shane Shane would be better positioned to, to answer the back row question um, I don't know Jordy Murphy at all uh, you know I, I wasn't around when when, um, when I was playing but he seems to be a player that Joe Schmidt has a lot of faith in um, he's a guy who's he can cover a lot of different positions. He seems to be kind of comfortable playing in a few different positions where he decides to move Sean O'Brien into number eight after being out of the game for such a long time uh, and playing, obviously, a f- fantastic match last week, but then having to the added pressure of having to play a step up again against uh, Billy Vonapola at number eight. I'm not sure he'll, he'll do that. He might rely on someone like Jordy Murphy. He's obviously a very smart player who he puts a lot of faith in. Um, so I think they're, you know, they're the two obvious selection decisions uh, that, that I think it will will kind of keep him preoccupied. Shane, now's your chance to say something nice about Jordy Murphy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're dead right in terms of he has a lot of faith in him. I think, obviously, starting him in Italy at number eight was probably maybe an idea into what the way he's thinking. I think if you pick Jordy at eight, you obviously leave Pete at six and you leave Sean at seven. If you pick Ian at six, you move Pete across to seven and you move Sean to eight. So there's three different changes rather than one. Um, now he's made big calls in the past, so it's on... God knows what he might do, but I would have thought I'm on the kind of same page as Dennis in terms of maybe putting Jordy in there. But Ian Henderson has probably been the one standout guy that comes on and performs really, really yeah. well. So he's definitely able for it, and, uh, and it's if, a nice option to have. And if you've Healy and Henderson on the bench, then that's just huge impact. impact as well. Very much so, exactly. Yeah, so nice options to have. Damien, do the players themselves, uh, from what you hear, uh, tend to know what's happening early in the week? Does, it, does, does Joe keep them on their toes? He definitely keeps them on their toes, and his biggest thing is probably the bench. Uh, very hard to guess what way Joe was going to uh, pick the bench. Uh, I agree with Dennis. I think Jack uh, should start. I think, um, well, being the position I'm from, I think the scrum is obviously going to be a huge um, factor this weekend. And I think Jack has been playing extremely well, and I think uh, Keane will be a huge asset coming off the bench and making a big impact uh, with, with Hendo. All right. Dennis? Yeah, I just think th- this match in particular, people as- associate different things with different teams, but I think increasingly England are probably the most physical side uh, in the championship. Like two, year- two years ago, they came to Lansdowne to Lansdowne, the Viva Stadium, and Ireland were 
favourites going into that game, and they had you know a very full side. And England really it was it was a very wet day, and England just strangled them in the game. Tom Wood had a very good game. Rob Shaw had a very good game, and you know I think Ireland will be very very acutely aware of the physical challenge that England will bring this weekend. Okay, well, putting aside pandering to the crowd here and blind patriotism, I'm going to ask the four of you who you think is going to win on Sunday. Shane. Ireland, <laughs> Damien. Ireland. Who's going to be brave here, Dennis? I think Ireland can win, definitely. I think they're... they're, they're uh, <laughs> it's on you, Jerry. Yeah. Stare draw. A draw, a draw, Jerry draw, Thorny. I think a draw is what the bookies have. In, we leave that last. So a massive round of applause, please, for Jerry Thorny, Dennis Hickey, Damien Varley, and Shane Jennings. Thank you very much. Now, Ken, wherever you are, I have a bone to pick with you because a few weeks back you brought a certain sports personality into the conversation on the football podcast. A personality so strong that I have promised our listeners a regular slot based on this man. So far, you've made a, a liar out of me because he hasn't reappeared. Uh, yes, uh, the person to whom you refer is none other than the world's greatest football agent, Mr. George Bendis. That's the one. Uh, and now, especially for tonight's Irish Times... <laughs> especially for tonight's Irish Times second captain sports night with Robert Reck, we've prepared a world exclusive, which is to say translated extracts and I must say these are authentic translated extracts, from his world-famous biography, La Clave Mendez, The Mendez Key. Extract one, the man, the legend. Designer suit with vest, select an elegant tie, immaculate shoes, intoxicating perfume, the latest haircut, three phones in one hand, and a hands-free headset permanently glued to his ear. That is the picture of George Mendez, born in Lisbon on January 7th, 1966, the greatest football agent in the world. But this description is missing a key ingredient in the arsenal of weapons of seduction. His gaze. Those eyes to whom have succumbed world stars such as Cristiano Ronaldo, Falcao, Mourinho, Diego Costa and James Rodriguez. Those eyes that pierce you beyond the redness. It's the only item that's out of the ordinary for a man of business. The rest is just props. But outside the media halo of mystery, George Mendes is for friends and acquaintances a simple, humble, funny and caring guy. In, in short, someone normal. Take the term used by Cristiano Ronaldo for the title of this book. Quote, I call the book Miracle Worker George Mendes. You know what is Miracle Worker? He who does miracles with the players. <laughs> Extract two, the charismatic joker. Uh, the close relationship of the footballer Costinha uh, with Mendes can be seen in a number of anecdotes that the former player tells about his agent. He was my best man, and as an example of what a joker he is, it only occurred to him during my wedding, my wedding, no less, to organize a game of football between the couples and the single people. Of course, my wife got angry and came running over to take the ball off us. Uh, on top of that, George delivered a joke saying, oh, we can see who's wearing the trousers in this relationship. Costina just gesticulates as he remembers the story. But George, how can you take a ball to play a game at my wedding? But that's George. <laughs> Extract three, the movie star. Three, two, one, action, daring. Smart, active, effective, relentless, elegant, and reserved. Who wouldn't want to bring together all the characteristics of one of cinema's great protagonists, James Bond, an action hero of the big screen, created by Ian Fleming and mirrored in the real world in the form of George Mendes. <laughs> However, in this case, he is the 007 of sports, licensed not to kill, but to rather to buy and sell players. A round of applause, please, everyone, for George Mendes, super agent. Thanks, man. Now, if people are jumping into this show mid-podcast for some reason, we're here at the Sugar Club in Dublin for a special edition. It's the Irish Times second captain sports night with Rabo Direct, and it's time to get our next guests out. One of these men once showed us the ultimate act of generosity by arriving into the Irish Times studios with a beautiful pavlova for the second captain's team. The other one has never brought us one single meringue-based dessert, but we'd like you to welcome them both anyway, please. Richie Sadler and Brian Kerr. <laughs> Richie, just to let you know straight off the bat, it's not too late to bring us in a dessert at, at, any, at any stage. Uh, Brian did bring us in a pavlova, and uh, we, we thank him once again for that Don't tasty treat. Don't tell the reason why, though. Hang, hang on. <laughs> Are we cancelling out everything that happened in News Talk? Uh, what, did you bring, what did you bring into us there? When did you bring everybody in there, either? A massive cake with Frank on the cover. Oh, of course! <laughs> I thought the whole gag was about me. I thought he didn't. 
Richie, our apologies. On air, I'd like to apologize, Richie. Okay, I totally Matt Frank, Frank, that's the greatest, the, the Pavlova in comparison, Brian. I mean, really. Well, then you're a poor man. <laughs> we have been talking about the, uh, the rugby, the England, uh, Ireland, the rugby, but the English football team come to town in June for the first time since 1995. Uh, Richie, you were at that infamous game at Lansdowne Road? I was, yeah. Um, I remember everyone after the game who was there claimed to be in the thick of it. Everyone seemed to be sitting right near it. Where I was sitting was the west lower, just maybe one block to the right of the halfway line. So we couldn't see anything as it was happening during the game. We could see kind of missiles, couldn't make out what they were, were being thrown from the west upper onto the south terrace, as it was. Um, and then when the game was stopped, we were all asked to leave our seats because we were kind of in the firing line a little bit if the missiles were going to come this way. So we went out on the pitch and then just watched the rest of it. <laughs> From the you, middle of the pitch. I believe you have a, a bit of a story about the, how you got tickets for the game and the oh, surrounding yeah. events. Well, I don't come out great from this story. Um, All the better. <laughs> it was, it was very, I remember it was very difficult to get tickets at the time, but my uncle, don't ask me how, but he, he was mayor of Limerick. And... <laughs> That's a, you can't piece that one together <laughs> at all, Harry. Not just to become mayor. Yeah, just... M- mayor Dick Sadler. I think he did two terms, but he. <laughs> Come on, that's this is his name. Uh, You're making it up. He ga- he gave me a. <laughs> he managed to get me tickets anyway, but they were free. But I kind of saw a little opportunity to make a few quid, so I kind of got me mates. Then we made and said, I'll give the tickets from you if you convince your parents that we have to pay for them so I'd pocket the money. Thought genius, got the tickets, went, nice little learner, perfect crime, no one found out. But because the game finished the way it did, there was then on the radio the next day that people who bought tickets could potentially get a refund. <laughs> and at this stage, my, the money was spent and I, I don't have access to that kind of money that I could just find it again and give it to the parents. But I, I don't know how it, how it ended up. I don't think we got a refund, but I do remember one time being in the kitchen with one of my mate's mothers telling her she was saying that she was going to look for a refund, and I was kind of telling her, I think that the right thing to do here is leave it with the FAI, just for the good of the game. <laughs> They've probably lost a load of money on the fixture. <laughs> leave well enough alone, and I think I got away with it. <laughs> uh, were you there on the night, Brian? Did you? I was actually, but there was some English bloke in my seat, and I didn't fight with him. Uh, I I would normally have been on the west stand at that stage. I, I, I don't know why I was always over there. I generally stuck behind a, a pole or a pillar. But on that particular night, I was on the other side looking over at, at the events, and by God, was I happy I was on the other side. Uh, it, was a, it was a scary night, but a very good first 20 minutes of the match played well. Great goal by David Kelly. Looked like it might be our game. And then all hell blo- broke loose. Wasn't that scary, really, to be there? Because, I mean, I remember watch, I was watching on TV, and obviously it was very annoying that the match was being stopped after with Ireland leading 1-0, but... That would have been my that would have been my first thing was where did he stop in the match? Could not just have this row outside, Mm. and uh, but it was a bit serious. And afterwards, you know, as you got a bit closer, trying to get out out of the ground, I can remember it being quite messy. Um, But if you were on that side or on the on the terrace behind the goal nearest to the end where the English supporters were. I, I, there's no doubt it was frightening there. The amazing thing was why the English lads were, were upstairs in the stand, which is um, always um, a proposition for, for some mad treatment. And um, it, it, it was a horrible night. It was a period that we had to wait so long for another match with England as a result of it. I remember it, but it was fairly horrible. Like we, we, When I was out on the pitch, like first of all, you, you, there's a bit of buzz. Right? You're standing in Lansdowne Road pitch, and, and, and that was great, but... We're kind of looking up, because we didn't know at the time whether the people who were causing the trouble would get out of the area they're in. And if they did, well then, there's no telling what's going to happen. So we're kind of just standing there, just hoping it would die down. But you kind of want to look, because I've never seen anything like that before. Um, but yeah, it was a horrible atmosphere. Actually, a few weeks after that was when I first got offered to go to trial in Millwall. And the first thing, the first mate of mine said when I said it to him, he said, do you know the Millwall fans, they're the ones who were at that game that night. You know, they hate Irish people, yeah? <laughs> The lovely combat eight in people. Yeah, that's yeah. that's all. They they they. That became your fans. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all my crew. Yeah. Did that give you? Hmm? Did, did that make you have second thoughts at all? Jesus, no. Um, 
No, well, if there was a Reiki club asking me to go over and trial you, you might handpick he the best one. He says modestly. No, you jump at the chance to go and trial anyway. But I did remember having that in my head at the time. Um, no, there was probably a heavy Millwall presence there on the night. Um, yeah, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> Brian, the, um, well, everyone's moved on to a certain extent over the last 20 years. We still see these incidents like with the Chelsea fans in Paris last week, the Feyenoord fans over in, uh, in Rome, oh. wasn't it, were, were uh, hell-bent on a bit of, bit of trouble over the last few days of the Europa League last week as well. Is there still an element within football? Is it actually impossible to get everything, to get that to disappear entirely? I think it's, um, there's always a potential for some rough stuff at a lot of the games. Most clubs have a, a fairly uh, volatile following around the place that have been kind of just about um, just about controlled, I'd say. I think the increase in prices in games, the all-seater stadiums, uh, the massive cost of going to games in general, huge police. I mean, it's the experience going to games in England. We've probably got used to it, people that go on a regular basis, how heavy the policing is and how we take for granted the way they move the opposition supporters from the train, the bus, walk to march them up to the ground with, with horses, police horses, and get them out, keep them in the ground for half an hour after. And we just take that for granted. But I think there's... It's always on the edge of violence, with with um, in, in particularly. I think you mentioned the Dutch supporters. I think Italian supporters, and in many ways, England English supporters. But most clubs have got, really got control of it. But we we uh, you, you never know. You know, if, if the eye is taken off the off the ball on that one. It can be a big problem again. City Barcelona is a big game, the Champions League this week, and uh, I know Ken, you feel that it might be the best thing for football and even for the players involved in the Barcelona forward line at the moment to have all the top players stockpiled into the same attack. Well, it's like Brian's saying, you know, I mean, if the the pricing of you know uh, tickets for games is, is changing the crowd, I mean, it's also changing the game itself. I mean, you can see this now. Barcelona turned up at Manchester City, a club which we, we, could, we all know why you know, Manchester City have a team as strong as they do. But the team that they're going to bring is containing Neymar, Luis Suarez and Lionel Messi all on the same team. I mean, to me, this is... I mean, it, you, you might think, okay, it's great to be able to get the chance to see these guys play together and see what they do. I'd actually rather watch them play against each other for different teams. I just think it's too much to have... Uh, to, you know, to have this many stars in one team is not good for the chemistry team. It's not good for the Bansa team. I mean, you think... This is, I mean, this is the question, really. It's like you, you've got players of that quality should be able to play brilliantly together. It never really seems to happen that way. Um, well, I think always to win football matches about getting the balance right between attack and defence with Barcelona... Uh, they won 11 games in a row before Saturday with, with, with Malaga and the loss. But when you look at those results closely, a lot of the scores were, were 5-2, 4-2, 3-2. There were very few zeros in it. And that means, to me, uh, looking at it, I think they're still vulnerable defensively and, and likely can see goals. And why they may not win the trophy this year, didn't win the trophy last year, the first time since 2008. So I think there's hope for City tomorrow, even though they have had continuously the same problem in, in European matches, which are lack, lack of balance uh, between attack and defence, trying to play Navas, Nasri, Silva, um, Zeko, and Yaya Toure in the same team, and then getting done at the back because the centre-backs let them down because Nastasic... Uh, two years ago, had a nightmare because Dean Michaelis fouled Messi on the way outside the box last year. They're down to 10 men from early in the second half of the game. That sort of stuff. So getting that balance, and you're talking about those three guys, how they play together, how the team performs with the three of them in it. it, it, it I don't think, it, I think it's clicking in the league. They're scoring lots of goals. But the other bit of it gives everybody hope that a team with those three superstars can be beaten this year in the Champions League. Just an earlier shot, I think it was Shane was saying, was it Dennis? I'm not sure. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> a happy team. You always hear a happy team talk about their coach and giving them credit. Lionel Messi doesn't really talk a lot about his coach at the moment. The coach has to ask, answer a lot of questions about Messi. Most recently, Messi saying, yeah, you know, the whole atmosphere changed. Um, yeah, we're, we're trying. Things have changed a lot around here. We're we're doing a lot better now. You know, it's great. And then Luis Enrique coming in and saying, "Well, nothing's changed. We're doing everything exactly the same as we have done." Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious that they don't get on that well. Is, is it a problem? Do you think for Barcelona that Messi is so big, so far above any coach 
that he's kind of an unmanageable figure. I mean, he's, he's 37 goals this season, 18 assists. He's obviously quite a good player to have on your team. But he, he is, 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 is his being... World exclusive Ken Ernie. Well, is, <laughs> is, I was going to say, well spotted, Ken. <laughs> is, it a, is it a problem, though, for Barcelona, the, the outside status of this player, that there isn't a coach in the world who could handle him? If he says, no, nah, I don't want to do it that way, they're not going to do it that way. I, th I think, generally speaking, a, a dressing room that functions properly has one man in charge, and everyone knows who's in charge, and if there is any disputes, the manager is the boss. <laughs> When you're talking about Messi, like you're, you're right, there probably is no coach in world football that you could bring into Barcelona, and if there was a conflict between that coach and Messi, that the coach would go to the board and say, listen, either he goes and I go, and the board would back the coach. He, he is so good, and he is so, so valuable to them, he would cost so much to replace if you could even find a replacement, which I don't think he could. Is it a problem that he's got that status? I think the, the, the answer to that is it's, it's, it is a problem, but it's one that you would tolerate, given what he does on the pitch. Well, there's too many, probably too much money sloshing around the top clubs. There's a crowd trouble around Europe. But thankfully, we have one man injecting some sanity in proceedings in football today, and that man is Richard Keyes. Ken, you're all over <laughs> his blog today. Your, your Key to Sports is the name of the Richard Keyes blog. And as we can see behind us here, there is actually a, a, a key used instead of his name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, Richard Keyes is the best blogger in the game. Um, Insider knowledge, uh, manly, staccato, prose style. But I think the special sauce is his grudge that he has against the world. Um, and particularly Sky. Sky, who obviously throwing money around with, with little regard for chemistry at the moment. But uh, Richard Keyes turned on the TV the other day and was mystified, like everybody, to see Jose Mourinho on goals on Sunday. What's going on here? But obviously, uh, Richard Keyes has the extra level. He's like, what's a highly paid BT ambassador? doing on Sky Sports. So obviously he makes a couple of calls. He still talks to some people in there. He says it was all prearranged. It was a decision made at the highest levels of the highest is in quotation marks. And Chelsea, as they tried to clear the air after recent problems between the two, started by something Jamie Redknapp said, I'm told. I don't know for sure because I'm busy doing my own job when he's on air. <laughs> now, Jamie Redknapp hadn't actually said anything, but he did appear on TV over the caption, Diego Costa crimes. Just really didn't like this. Now, Richard Keyes continues. He says, I can believe the suggestion, though. I lost count of the times I had to calm him during the many occasions I worked with him. This is Jamie Redknapp we're talking about here. He says, there's a guy at Arsenal can thank his lucky stars. There was glass between him and Jamie Redknapp the night of the four-all against Spurs at the Emirates. Jamie lost the plot completely. He wanted to fight him. It was the last time we let him work on a game that one of his dad's teams was playing in. He'd often get too close to individuals he liked or not and couldn't offer objective opinions. Uh, so... Fairly acerbic stuff from Richard Keyes. Well, this is something you have. You've been writing about quite a lot, Richie, uh, in the last couple of weeks. The that line between being a pundit in the know and having connections in the game, and maybe being too close, to actually being any way objective. Is that is that a problem uh, with Redknapp and others? I've never been in the experience in in the position, but I'd imagine it's a problem being a pundit in a, in a match that your alpha is managing one of the teams. <laughs> um, I, I, but, 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 but is it, it a problem it, though? Because yeah. everyone, everyone's like, well, you everyone know, he's not going to say anything so bad about his dad. Well, once you know, like, I mean, say Liam Brady and Ortiz, he's not going to say anything bad about Arsene Wenger, right? I mean, I, 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 or Trapattoni for 10 years. Sorry, or or Trapattoni. But once you know, if you kind of know where the person is coming, you know everyone is going to have certain biases. So if you kind of factor that in. Well, I, I, was, I was thinking this as we were sitting there watching. So Brian was my manager in the youth side, so. The, oh, there's trouble now. <laughs> I was it was bad enough earlier, Dennis Hickey was talking about the guys not talking about the manager in very positive terms. And I'm sitting there going, oh shit, I haven't heard many talking very positively. <laughs> until well, I I'll was, start. Until I'll start. I was finished, right? <laughs> and then I was oh, geez, no, he was very good. Like, Wouldn't you blitz? <laughs> Wouldn't you say it at the time, you swine? <laughs> Thanks, Roy, for putting her in the book ten years later. I would have found it difficult if... if it's true, is it? Yeah. The bill, no, hang on, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Having worked with Brian at the youth level and various trips we went on and I've spoken a bit about them, I would have found it very difficult to be in any way objective if, if my career ended the day Brian got the senior job and I would have had the past with Brian, Brian is my manager. If I had found myself in any TV studio commenting on the Irish team or Brian, my immediate 
my starting point would always be to look at the positives. So no matter what question you ask me about Jesus, results, that's a relief. <laughs> do you know, do you, but you just would do. And, and I'm not, I, I can't think of anyone who plays now where, where I have that starting point. I just because there's either enough distance or no, they're, they're thick-skinned enough that no matter what I say, they're not going to care anyway. Well, then would you applaud somebody like Stephen Gerrard last week for his candor when um, analysing Mario Balotelli's No, I think it's when, you, when, you're, when you're in the dressing, when you're still a player, and I speak to some other lads who work in the media who are still playing, they, they all recognise that there's certain things you just cannot say. You're, you're shouldn't be, you shouldn't have really been doing that gig. Yeah, it's I just mean, if, I, if I was a manager of that club, uh, I, 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 would, I would try to bring in a rule and say, look, you, you can't do punditry on us when we're playing. I mean, I, I saw an Irish international this year who played for a team in England. He shall be nameless. Oh, no, it's Keith Andrews. But uh, <laughs> he, he, he was doing a... He was, he was doing, he was We're doing literally just getting ready to possibly edit no. this next bit out of the podcast. Continue, Brian, for our live audience here. Uh, Keith's a good, Keith's good, good fella. But he was doing... Watford were on the telly one night, and he's sitting in the box doing, doing the gig on, on talking about the team. And I'm going, uh, it's no real surprise here that Keith doesn't seem to get on so well with this particular manager. He was gone within a few weeks. He, he was out the door. Like, there, there has to be a principle about it. I know Stephen Gerrard's next gig, he's looking at, uh, at Carragher and saying, there's one there for me. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think you start on the night, you have a night off, and you're the club captain, and say, sorry, lads, I won't be in the dressing room tonight. I've got a gig here. It's just, it's, to me, it's just a crazy principle. Well, I've, seen, I've seen players... I mean, I, I remember seeing Roy Keane do it on a Man United Arsenal match years ago when he was still you know, playing for them or whatever. Um, but is he, he's obviously thinking, I've got to position myself here. You know what I mean? There's, there's a couple months. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 